0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonnell. More people are going to sign up for DACA. We'll discuss the biggest legal setback yet for the Trump administration's effort to cancel DACA. The rent-a-car attack that killed 10 in Toronto on Monday is astounding on several levels. We'll sort out the motivations and the otherworldly policing. And on Global Notes, a record label that celebrates Afro-Colombian culture. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Yesterday, Judge John D. Bates said that the administration's decision to terminate the program Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, was based on the virtually unexplained grounds that the program was unlawful. He then went further than other judges who have ruled the same and said that the government had 90 days to resume accepting new applications to the program. We're going to talk about what's happened here with Ire Rendon. She is vice president of immigration strategy and advocacy for the Resurrection Project, a Chicago based social services and advocacy nonprofit. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ire.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And is also someone who has signed up for the DACA program herself. Yeah. Now what did this ruling mean to you? I think most of us look at this and say, well, more people are going to go get to sign up. But mm-hmm. for 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 people who are recipients of DACA, it means mm-hmm. a whole host of things. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so um, I think the biggest thing, obviously, will be if all of a sudden we're in, you know, in 90 days, um, all the folks who qualify for DACA, but for some reason haven't applied, it could have been because of age, it could have been because of funds, it could have been because maybe they didn't meet the educational requirements at the moment, um, are going to be able to do so, right, hopefully in 90 days. Um, and, um, and, and that's this had,
0: like yeah. how many people ballpark is that?
1: So, um... <laughs> In 2017, um, Migration Policy Institute um, uh, said that there was approximately 1.2 million people who would have qualified for DACA. Um, around 790,000, so about 800,000, have applied for DACA um, at some point, meaning that there's about 400,000 um, who would na- uh, nationally be able to qualify. In Illinois, there's 69,000 who um, are potentially eligible, 42,000 who have applied, meaning that there's, that's 27,000 that we're looking at in Illinois.
0: And the gap between um, signing up and not signing up, how long has that been?
1: Um, So um, in September 5th, um, we weren't able to renew anymore starting October 5th. For anybody whose DACA expired after March 5th of 2018, um, I know that this is a lot of dates. Um, And um, since September 5th, nobody who had never applied for DACA has not been eligible to apply. So for the last basically six months, um, anybody who might have qualified for DACA has not been able to sign up.
0: And the other things that might be an outgrowth of this decision are what?
1: Yeah. So... um, Also, additionally, uh, to having to accept um, DACA initial applications, um, if in 90 days the judge continues um, this injunction, um, what would happen is it would open up other uh, benefits to DACA recipients, um, such as advanced parole. Um, Advanced parole is a program that once you have DACA, then you would submit another application for permission to be able to re-enter the country. Um, And it would give you some time to be able to leave, perhaps visit. Visit a sick loved one um, in your home country and maybe visit for the first time um, so or that, leave that, for work. That sounds like that
0: right there could be huge for people's lives. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's massive. Um, being able to leave and being able to be reunited with your family um, or leave for work or for you know um, school. You know, If a DACA recipient is in college and they want to study abroad right now, they cannot do so. Um, if we're able to have advanced parole, then that would allow um, DACA recipients to, to be able to leave and come back safely.
0: Um, and there were there other benefits that are an outgrowth um, of this decision
1: so uh, some other ones include things like um, emergency care um, at the hospitals um, but those are uh, sometimes are not as often talked about um, but with advanced parole uh, it's also particularly good for uh, Mexican um, daca recipients like myself um, because a lot of us don't have what's called a uh, entry with inspection meaning that we're unable to adjust our status even if we did have a U.S. citizen family member because we don't have a valid entry or an authorized entry, right? With the stamp, then you're able to adjust your status. So if a DACA recipient gets advanced parole, is married to a U.S. citizen, then they can adjust their status within the country without having to leave. Um, If you uh, try to adjust your status um, without a authorized entrance, what happens is you trigger an automatic ten-year ban when you leave the country, um, which, you know, maybe you could apply for a waiver for hardship. Most of us can't. Um, so it sort of puts us in this very tricky situation of you can't leave the country and you can't legally stay in the country. Um, so advance parole kind of helps folks um, be able to um, have that stamp of a valid entry.
0: I'm talking with Ira Rendon from the Resurrection Project about the decision yesterday uh, by Judge Bates uh, about the DACA program. He went further than other judges and ruled that uh, the government uh, should begin accepting new applications to the program in 90 days unless the Trump administration can prove otherwise. Um, what what did you make of the the pathway that's been happening here? This is the third time that um judges have ruled against the administration and they say the same thing that uh it's uh, it's hard to explain why this is unconstitutional for the government.
1: Yeah, correct. Um You know, we feel that, um, and I think this is exactly what every uh, court is saying, um, is that immigration, actually, the executive government has a lot of authority, right? Um, And so just like they're able to give TPS, take away TPS, um, you know, they're able to give and take away uh, DACA, but you have to do it in a correct legal way. Um, So the, um, you know, President uh, Obama, when he authorized DACA, the reason that he gave um, wasn't because we love these kids, right? It was because we don't have the resources to deport 11 million undocumented immigrants. This is the lowest priority. And so what we're going to do is create this program so that we're not necessarily wasting our efforts and our um, you know, resources um, on what is considered the lowest priority. That is constitutional. Um, and the way that uh, the Trump administration was trying to take it away is basically by saying that the executive branch does not have this authority. Um, With things like TPS, with advanced parole, I'm sorry, with uh, deferred action, um, the courts are saying this is absolutely in um, the realm of what a president can do. And so the Trump administration must give a proper legal reason as to why they're taking it away.
0: What do you think uh, the next shoe to fall here is? How does this move next in your mind?
1: So, um, well, what's going to happen is um, the uh, Department of Justice has already announced that they will be presenting what they believe will be stronger arguments. They will continue to try to take down, um, try to resend DACA altogether. Right now, there is renewal for folks that um, currently have DACA or who have DACA in the past because of the other two injunctions. Um, And I think it will continue to go and it could go as far as the Supreme Court, although um, maybe the Supreme Court won't take it because there isn't... um, um, it's not like one court is saying something different than another uh, court, um, so it could be that this just continues to happen until the Trump administration decides to resend DACA again with. Um, using the proper channels and with the proper proper arguments.
0: And the Trump administration has already trying to go to the Supreme Court. Didn't they in February ask, uh, we just want a decision on this?
1: Yeah, so they wanted to bypass the appeals court um, and just go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, it has to go down back to the uh, appeals court. And we do ex- The Ninth Circuit Court in California did announce that in May they'll be taking up the, the appeals.
0: Is it a good thing that... Um the judge who ruled yesterday was an appointee of George W. Bush?
1: I think so. I think it shows that the courts, just like the Ninth Circuit Court that is um, considered to be the most liberal court um, to something that's much more of a moderate court um, judge, right, um, is saying exactly the same thing, that DACA is constitutional and that the way that the Trump administration took it off is unconstitutional. And so um, I think it shows unity amongst the lower courts. And um, hopefully that means that that would sway um, the uh, whatever decision would come out of the Supreme Court if that's where it ends up. Um, tell us
0: a little bit about yourself. And uh, you are a person who has signed up for DACA. Um, when did you come to this country? How did yeah. it work out?
1: Um, so I came to the U.S. when I was four years old um, to, with my mom and my brother um, to be reunited with my dad, who came when I was eight months. Um, so, um, you know, came here, grew up in a small town in northern Illinois, um, grew up like most other folks, right, riding my, bikes in the summer, my bike in the summer and um, going to school um and um you know and uh, actually my dad um, was supported when I was younger um, and uh, he he's he's here right um, he came back to be with his family um, so I've been working in this area now for about 10 years because of my own immigration status.
0: And you're, you've been uh, organizing on this effort. You've been you, you formed the line at Navy Pier for the people who were mm-hmm. signing up. The the staggeringly long line I saw mm-hmm. one day that stretched all the way back to um, the, the river and Lakeshore Drive.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of uh, uh, you know were. We sort of feel like this moment is a very dark moment for immigrants in the last couple of years, um, but we've had a lot of wins throughout the years. I was able to go to college because of a law that passed in Illinois in 2003 that allows undocumented students to go to college and pay in tuition. Um, we passed driver's licenses, and both my parents have driver's licenses, and my brothers have driver's licenses. Um, we have um, all kids in Illinois, right, undocumented children, um, who uh, are able to have health care and we're in Illinois, we're the state with the second highest um, amount, a percentage of Latino children who have health care. And we have DACA, right? Um, And so there's been several wins that have happened um, throughout uh, the years. Uh, And, you know, and I do this specifically because of that, because I think a lot of these smaller wins um, are actually what makes the lives of undocumented immigrants better.
0: Uh, Eventually. You need a Dream Act to pass. All DACA recipients are going yeah. to need a Dream Act if they're going to remain here permanently.
1: Yeah. Um, well, DACA doesn't cover everybody, right? Um, there are very strict requirements to be able to um, apply, um, and it's not a permanent solution. We have to renew every two years, um, and then there's moments like the last six months where you don't know if you can renew, um, and um, it's not. Uh, it's just two years of work permit, two years of protection from deportation. It's not a pathway to citizen citizenship. Um, and I think for a lot of us, that's sort, that's the ultimate dream, right, is to be able to become U.S. citizens and um, form a part of this, you know, form a part of the U.S. and actually be uh, considered a part of the U.S. the way that we consider ourselves. Um, and it would be the ultimate protection for us. Uh, and it would allow us to um, live more freely.
0: Uh, your parents, they uh what are they going to do? They're kind of getting on in years, and are they mm-hmm. thinking about moving back to Mexico for healthcare reasons?
1: Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think that this uh, this winter was uh, difficult, um, and um, they've been. You know, it's tough to be undocumented. Um, And you hear a lot about our stories of folks that came in um, at a younger age. Um, However, I um, have started realizing that it's absolutely the worst to be undocumented and and be older. Um, And so I think now uh, the reality of perhaps one day my parents will have to move back to Mexico. And um, for me, that means that if I don't have a DREAM Act um, and I can't leave the country, um, that I may never see them again. Uh, And so that's sort of what I've been you know what we're what we've been facing and trying to figure out what the next steps are for them. But I think for the moment they're here, um, and I see them in the you know in the weekends, and so I want to be able to keep doing that.
0: But the ruling yesterday might give you the chance to go back and forth uh, and move in and out of the country. Well,
1: somewhat. Advanced parole is a very tricky uh, situation and you do have to pay for each time uh, that you apply. Um, it's over $500, so it's not like it's an easy um, ability to be able to move back and forth or to travel back and forth between countries. Um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult program to get into, but um, it does give you the possibility to perhaps be able to do that every once in a great while.
0: Well, I imagine the bottom line thing that you and many other people think about is that so many people and the percentages are like 70, 80 percent of people want to see or, you know, would respond positively to a DREAM Act would would like to see this happen.
1: Yeah. There's always been a lot of support for the DREAM Act in um, the public, uh, uh, but not, necess- that's not necessarily translating into votes in Congress. Um, and it. Because it is so popular, uh, we're also pinned against uh, the rest of immigrants and we're used as a tool um, to be able to try to get something like a wall or more interior enforcement. Um, and so the, B- the Dream Act being very popular, it's, it hasn't necessarily helped us. <laughs>
0: Gary Rendon is vice president of Immigration Strategy and Advocacy for the Resurrection Project, a Chicago-based social service and advocacy nonprofit. She is one of the people who have signed up for DACA. Thanks a lot for joining me and good luck. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the rent-a car attack that killed ten in Toronto. I'm Jerome McDonnell, you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. If you haven't seen the video of the capture of the driver accused of killing 10 people with a rented van in Toronto on Monday, it is worth a look. We're going to play the audio here, and this is the policeman in this audio yelling, Get down, and the van driver is saying, Kill me here initially. And towards the end there, the driver's saying, I've got a gun in my pocket. And the policeman says, I don't care. We're going to talk about the capture and the astounding motivations of the attacker with Jesse Brown. He's a Toronto-based journalist. He brought the Jean Gomeshi case to light. And he does the Canada Land podcast. He's publisher of the Canada Land podcast network. I've talked with him previously about the book, Canada Land Guide to Canada. It's a humorous look at Canada's dark side. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. My pleasure. Um, could you tell us about the policing aspect of that, which is capturing a lot of people's imagination here in the United States that um, this, this policeman did not shoot the attacker even when he was you know, trying to pretend he had a gun?
2: Well, I, the the heroic actions of that police officer are getting a lot of justified praise. Um, I, I will point out that he was doing his job um, as it was supposed to be done. We're, we're surprised that he didn't do it incorrectly uh, because so often that's the case. And, and that's not simply something that happens um, elsewhere. In, in Canada, we have a number of of occasions where police have shot and killed people who were not in fact brandishing weapons, people with mental disabilities. So it's it's wonderful that this brave officer um, kept a cool head and that this uh, the suspect was taken without a, fo- a shot fired. But that is how it's supposed to be.
0: Uh, let's talk about the suspect himself. His name's Alec Manassian, Min- and uh, he is facing uh, 10 counts of first-degree murder now. And uh, there, yesterday, it came to light that there was a Facebook post that uh, seems to indicate he's a misogynist and associated with uh, alt right movements. Uh, can you explain what what that's about?
2: Well, right at the time of the attack, the uh, this. this uh, sort of a, exactly at the same time, we'll figure out ex- uh, if there's a few minutes difference. A Facebook post from his account, it's been verified by Facebook as Alex Menissian's Facebook account, uh, is a, a very cryptic message identifying himself as an incel, an involuntary celibate. And this is a uh, an online community of um, misogynistic um, men, um, cis, uh, cis men who... Um, feel that they are hard done by, that they are denied sex by women they call women Stacys and men Chads. And, um, of course, the 2014 Islavista massacre in in the United States um, by Elliot Rogers, somebody who identified as an involuntary celibate and incel, who's something of – Uh, I I guess a martyr or a hero to these people, though, like a lot of these sort of 4chan uh, troll based Internet communities, there is a lot of irony, I think, and a lot of people who participate in it do so. Semi humorously, and then there are some people who take it very, very seriously. And Alec Manisian, who is somebody who uh, his mother, in an earlier news report from years ago, identified him as having Asperger's, uh, seems to be a high functioning autistic who had h- huge problems socializing and a fear of women. Um, he seems to have taken this misogynistic ideology very seriously.
0: Now, he isn't the only one. Um, there was a case a year ago that's actually in court now that seems to be uh, tied to the same thing.
2: Uh, if, if you're speaking of uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, yes. uh, yeah, this is uh, the young man who walked into a Quebec City mosque and shot six people dead while they were peacefully praying and injured a number of others. Um, he – there's no link between him and the incel movement, but he was a uh, well-known troll online who was uh, very active in anti-feminist um, posting and also was a Trump supporter and was somebody who, above anyone else, followed um, the American uh, podcaster and column, uh, syndicated uh, columnist uh, Ben Shapiro uh, from the Daily Wire um, was also a fan of, you know, everyone from Tucker Carlson to Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, uh, Alex Jones. Uh, his his Twitter likes and, and uh, online history reads like a who's who of uh, the alt-right, um, the ideologues and uh, propagandists.
0: Well, what do you think is going on here? You've got uh, the, these two instances of uh, people who were radicalized by... Uh, kind of uh, US events and uh, things that are happening with the alt right and, and the US? Well,
2: it's really concerning because, you know, Canadians consume American media. S- to To a degree that you know something between eighty to ninety five percent of our of our information consumption uh, across the board from what we read to the music we listen to the news we get uh, we favor American messaging first, and the conversation in the United States has become fascinating and uh, you know uh, entertaining alarming it, it, it is uh, certainly something that people follow and talk about more than our own domestic politics. And we have a situation with these, you know, damaged and obviously um, unwell and frustrated young men, where even though they live in, in, you know, in the case of Bissonette, who formed this irrational fear of uh, um, jihadist terror in Canada, we have more than a million Muslims in Canada who peacefully coexist. We do not have. Uh, any kind of a significant problem. I mean, it is it is uh, barely worth mentioning the, the, the few isolated events. This, this young man lived n- near uh, Muslim neighbors who never caused him any problem in his life, and yet he lived in an alternate reality based on this media consumption that, you know, as he put it to the police interrogators, he believed that he was saving the lives of his family, potentially. Uh, he believed Ben Shapiro, who told him that half of all Muslims are radicalized, and that by murdering as many of them as he could, he would be saving the lives of his own people. I mean, he lived in an absolute fantasy. That was uh, purely something that came to him through his screen.
0: I'm talking with Jesse Brown. He is a Toronto-based journalist and he does the Canada Land podcast and publishes their podcast network. Um, So... Uh, what do you think um, the United States or should should think about this? I know you got into it on on Twitter with Ben Shapiro uh, himself uh, and had some back and forth with him over um, what he's doing. That his responsibility is um, is what exactly?
2: He feels that he bears none whatsoever. Um, uh, he basically has said that he puts out facts and if some crazy person wants to go and and commit murder, feeling that they are inspired by his facts, that's not his problem, not his fault. Um, I think that 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 while I, I agree with the general point that, that we who communicate for a living in the media are not responsible for those who misinterpret what we say and twist what we say. Uh, Bissonnette did not misunderstand uh, Ben Shapiro. As much as Bissonnette's ideology is uh, loathsome to me, he, it is a uh, consistent with with uh, many of the things that Ben Shapiro was saying. Uh, he, he did not hear Ben Shapiro wrong when he heard that you know fifty percent. I mean, the, the facts are wrong, the information is false, but that is what Ben, ben Shapiro said: is that is that fifty percent of Muslims are radicalized, and that was something that he took to a murderous conclusion. I don't think that Ben Shapiro. Is responsible for those murders, I think he is uh, shares responsibility for inciting them. And we're already seeing right now, in the wake of uh, this week's tragedy here in Toronto, which is really has nothing to do with Islamist uh, terror even as a as a scarecrow even a, even as a fear um, you know Alec Manassian there's no reason to believe he was afraid of islamic terror at all we already see and it's not just american there are canadian uh, right wing journalists who have been looking for is this an ISIS-inspired terror attack, or was he in fact Middle Eastern, as one eyewitness erroneously um, said? And that, that eyewitness said he, he himself was not sure that it was Middle Eastern. That has already become a conspiracy theory that Alex Jones and um, Breitbart have run with. Uh, it, it is very possible, and it is—it's it's already alive right now. This idea that, in fact, there was a jihadist Middle Eastern suspect, and the cops. Uh, switched him with somebody else because, uh, you know, Trudeau's government doesn't want people to know that we have Islamist terror in Canada. I mean, it is absolute fabrication, falsehood, and it has terrible consequences, and the cycle seems unbreakable. Uh, There's just such a will. Um, If I can share with you one quick anecdote, there was a a journalist who uh, tweeted two tweets uh, in the in the early moments of this tragedy on Yonge Street in Toronto, one tweet was from one eyewitness saying uh, one eyewitness says that the suspect looked Middle Eastern. And another tweet from the same journalist said another eyewitness says that the suspect looked white. The tweet identifying the suspect as Middle Eastern was uh, retweeted something like 1500 times. The other tweet identifying the suspect as white uh, under 100 times. So the appetite for one particular narrative is voracious and it, and it creates an alternate reality.
0: I wonder if you could say something about how Toronto has reacted to this. Uh, it's the it's a super peaceful place there. We have 10 times as many murders in ter- than Toronto and Chicago. Um, what What's the reaction to this?
2: I mean, of course, people are rattled and traumatized, but uh, I think that the better side of most people in the city has won out. And uh, though some jumped to conclusions and perpetuated panic and divisiveness, uh, most people did not. And, uh, I think hey. that, you know, I, I, am a frequent critic of, uh, of Canada in many ways. And, and, uh, you know, our first to point out the ways in which we are not always what we tell the world we are. Um, but I feel like our, uh, greater angels won out in this and, and that the city is uh, resilience and, and, um, uh, what, what makes this city what it is is, is, is consistent and is, uh, is, is not damaged by this awful uh, occurrence.
0: Jesse Brown's a Toronto-based journalist and he does the Canada Land Podcast, publishes their podcast network. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the incident on Monday where 10 people were killed by a driver of a rented van in Toronto. Coming up after the break, we'll have global notes and we'll talk about Afro-Colombian music. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
2: Demi mahana e le le loco ma gente Pa kwa pa balababa Pa kwa pa balababa Pa kwa pa balababa
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And we're going to talk about Afro-Colombian music today with Lucas Silva. He is the founder of Palenque Records, and it's been promoting Afro-Colombian music and culture since 1996. Lucas, thanks a lot for joining us from Bogota.
3: Hello, how are you?
0: Good why did you start palenque records what was going on there in 1996 that you wanted to, to start uh promoting afro-colombian bands
3: well it just came by coincidence because i was living in france and uh, i came back to colombia i wanted to make a documentary movie on uh, cumbia music cumbia i was not on top at this time in cartagena so uh A friend of mine told me that uh, there was a new musical style, which was really a ghetto music. Everybody was kind of afraid of this because it was a bit dangerous to approach. And So I got in touch with these Champetas musicians and I became completely fascinated about this movement. It was uh, one of the most important moments in my life, the first time I met this Champeta.
0: Explain what Champeta means and why it was so dangerous to, to be involved with this ghetto music, because the music just sounds pretty fun.
3: Yeah, Champeta is a new Afro-Colombian style that has about 30 years old. It's a mix of Congolese, uh, Sukus, Nigerian high-life, Afrobeat, South African, modern pop music mixed with Afro-Colombian rhythms we can say it's a fusion between African pop music and Afro-Colombian traditional musical styles. So we started imitating African music and doing covers of African tunes from Congo, especially. And after we invented our own language out of this uh, inspiration, it was very dangerous to approach because at this time in 96, this music was only going on in in a very poor neighborhoods populated by black people and well colombia is a kind of a very racist country in some ways so uh, people was afraid a bit of this kind of musical expressions that 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 is why they call the movement champeta the meaning of champeta in spanish in colombia it means uh, a knife that the fisherman used to work on in the markets to cut the fish and things like that all the uh, dancers of the, this music they were selling the uh, fish or working in the streets when they gathered together to dance african music they always had this kind of knife on them right and they started fighting and things like that so that is why everybody called this music champeta right ah oh, that's a very and good story
0: now, now, one of the uh, bands involved here that you've been working with for years is Son Palenque. Uh, who are they? What what What's up with them? We want to hear one of their songs.
3: Yeah, Son Palenque is a very special band because they're coming from a village, a Black Maroon village. This means uh, free villages of uh, black people who ran away from slavery in a colonial time. So Son Palenque was founded in a, a beginning of the 80s by singer justo Valdez. He sings in uh, Palenque language, as in uh, this village, Palenque, they have a Creole, African mixed with Hispanic words. Uh, it's is called lengua palenquera or Bantu language. So uh, they were very legendary in the 80s and 90s because they recorded a lot of vinyls. After everybody forgot about them, and I started my label Palenque Records. So I say, well, I'm a filmmaker, but uh, it was so urgent for me to rescue all these cultural expressions that uh, I I thought the only way was to make a label.
0: And this is Son Palenque. (laughs) When we're talking about Palenque, it's a village, right? It's a village that was founded by freed slaves.
3: Yeah, Palenque was founded in the 16th century, in the 17th century, sorry, and uh, the slave was called Benko Biojo. He became uh, a legend today in the Afro-Colombian political movement because the legend says he was a kind of a king from Africa who came to Colombia as a slave, and uh, he ran away with a... Many black uh, slaves that running away with him found a place very far away from Cartagena to hide between mountains and jungle, and they hide from Spanish. And uh, so the Spanish sent lots of soldiers to kill them all, but they never could really get on, get on them. So uh, finally, the king of Spain had to had to do a peace treaty. In the peace treaty, they say that they should remain in their Palenque village forever, right? But white people were forbidden to stay in this place. So this village stayed in complete isolation for about three centuries, right? Because everybody was afraid of these black rebels, African rebels. And... uh, That is why they preserved a lot of African heritage and they preserved also the language, this Palenque language, which is very strong until today. And it's also, they teach it in in schools, in Palenque. Anthropologists and linguists have done research about the origins, the roots of Palenque language and Palenque traditions. And uh, it's a very strong connection with Congo and uh, Angola, especially.
0: That is some fascinating history. I'm talking with Lucas Silva. He is the founder of Palenque Records. He's in Bogota and we wanted to play another song from your label and this is Abdolardo Carbona. <laughs> Uh, really fun stuff that's terrific and contemporary sounding I, I can't believe he's 60 some years old that's, uh, that's amazing
3: yeah and he's still doing very well and uh, well Abelardo was very eclectic and, and he did some psychedelia albums Afrobeat oriented albums and uh, champeta also uh, he's my new artist. We were on tour in Europe, in France, just about one month ago. He's a very br- brilliant musician. That is why we are working on a new album with him.
0: How typical is he of the people you're working with, the artists you're working with? Uh, it sounds like a lot. There, you've got kind of a broad range of afro colombian artists you work with. Uh, but where do you find them? How do you how do you decide who to work with?
3: Well, my work is really untypical. It's very complicated work I do because um, some of my artists, I really find them in uh, very hard places. Well, some of them are very poor and some of them live very far away in the jungle, so in some cases. And I have to really do long trips to find them. Colombia is a very big big country. We have a lot of jungle and Pacific Coast, Caribbean Coast, Amazon, We have the Andes mountain system and things. Well, it's very diverse. But my my artists, I found them uh, doing research about Afro uh, black culture in Colombia and asking uh, elders about the musicians, right? And looking for the people had never recorded in the past also in some cases. They learn, they, it's not music for business or for making money. My work is just to help these people to come back to music again and bring it to the, to the world. Because I would like to show in, 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 in worldwide that Colombia is a country with, with a very important African heritage. Nobody talks about Colombia in this way that much. But in Colombia, we have about 10 million Afro-Colombian people. And I think this is very important, right?
0: And that's a, that's like a quarter of the population, and mostly is it along the Atlantic coast there where the afro Colombians are situated?
3: Well, it used to be this way, but uh, as we had a war for about 50 years, so um, now afro Colombian population is everywhere in Colombia, not only in the Caribbean or Pacific coast. Musically talking, it's very positive because uh, Bogota used to be a very white city. And now it's completely uh, mixed uh, for Colombian city. Africa comes to town and things. So f- for me, it's good uh, because people meet and do different kind of mixes.
0: I wanted to play another song here. You've launched into something you call an Electro Roots series, electronic remixes uh, that you've been doing. Uh, and they, they you know, continue to update the music in a really cool way. And we're going to hear one called Mama Africa, the Busy Twist Remix. Biso Banaya, Colombia
2: It's <laughs> why I come from Colombia Alongside Fungu Abel
0: That's Mama Africa, the Busy Twist remix. We're listening to some of the offerings of Palenque Records and talking with the founder, Lucas Silva. He is in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, How well has your music been received inside and outside of Colombia?
3: Well, at the beginning, it was a hard fight because uh, when I started talking about Champeta in 96, and everybody hated it. I mean, everybody thought it was uh, music made by criminals by dangerous people who was that? We're just talking nonsense. But then I was living in France and uh, everybody liked it because they didn't have any kind of prejudice. They, they were not doing the, the kind of discrimination we, we have between ourselves in Colombia. I'm very happy that as, as time goes by, more people know about Champeta, about Afro-Colombian music, not only Cumbia or not only salsa or... Uh, all kinds of uh, styles, but champeta or new musical rhythms as curulao and many others. Now every day it goes better and better because people get more aware that uh, Colombia is also Africa, you know. It's not only narcos, it's not only coffee or drugs or things like that. It's it's more about cultural things.
0: (laughs) The next song we want to play is Sam Bingo. It is a Gecko Jones remix. Uh, Tell us something about that.
3: Well, yes, uh, Sam Bingo is a track uh, from a very original band from Palenque called Estrellas del Caribe, which means Caribbean stars. And uh, it's a band of uh, some old people in Palenque that I recorded in, in the 90s. And there is, there is a New York DJ called Gecko Jones. He did uh, this version, this remix. It's a group of friends in New York, many DJs who we did this record together called Palenque Records, remixed. We call it Electro Roots, because you have electronical things put together put together with roots music or traditional styles.
0: Let's hear uh, Sam Bingo and here's the Gecko Jones remix. I wanted to skip over to another song that we wanted to play. It's by uh, Sexteto Tabla. Who are they?
3: Well, um, Sexteto Tabla is a very special band. It was uh, the first band I ever recorded in my life, which is a mix of Cuban influence and Cumbia and Palenque music, right? And uh, I fell in love with this band that I found the first recording of uh, Sexteto Tabla, in a vinyl edited by some anthropological doctors in Colombia. So I've been to Palenque looking for them. I just found them. They were all farmers. They play in funerals, they play in marriages, they play in ritual things like that. But uh, they didn't really care about recording or not. They were very, really countryside people. And then, well, for me, this band is so special because it's the, their style is unique. And they have an instrument which is called marimbula. It's a very special African bass that the Cubans brought to Colombia.
0: And we've got a uh, remix version uh, with the Moten remix of Maria Paulo here. <laughs> That's Sexteto Tabla in the uh, Moten remix of Maria Palo. Uh, that's a, that's really amazing sounding and amazing combination of uh, modern and uh, traditional there. That's terrific.
3: With this kind of releases, I do called Afro-Colombia Remix that we've done al- um, already two vinyls. What I want is to create a new blend of electronical music, a different style and different branch. W- what I'm dreaming is that uh, electro musicians would meet traditional musicians, but not in a colonial way, not in a not with a this colonial mentality some people use sometimes, but really a, an organic meeting, like a, a really a nice meeting where both of them have uh, their, their place. Both of them respect each other. You don't want to make uh, garbage music or things like that. And it's, we take really time to get into this, to do research and see how it fits better with the electro beats. Because I always dream about disco places or dance places or dance halls. Uh, could be a place where we learned a lot of new things about music in the world, right? About cultural things, and not just uh, commercial nonsense things, right? Now that so, sounds uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, within these um, uh, uh, electro releases, we worked with many producers from Europe, from the United States, from Africa, from different places, but uh, every time we work with people who is very much oriented in this way, in this direction.
0: Well, it sounds like you have found a fulfilling line of work and uh, are really doing something terrific, bringing Afro Colombian music to to the world.
3: Well, thanks a lot. I mean, um, uh, I'm really happy every day of my life working on this purpose because Colombia is very rich culturally, talking with too much. There is too much things to reveal. And I don't have enough time just to reveal them all. So I have to choose. Some of them. But uh, for me, it's a historical time because now is a um, very special time when you have old masters, 70, 80 years old. They are about to die. And uh, before they die, I want to preserve the art. The youngest people can take it again and so that this music wouldn't die, right? Because I, I can kind of uh, make a list of the musical Jars in a, in the african world or in afro in for colombia in 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 south america in black south america many rhythms are about to die because of uh, reggaeton modern music that nobody cares about the past and the traditions so uh, for me it's very important to to stop that phenomenon of this musical rhythms dying right and a way of preserving this heritage is to record it and to mix it also and well just to make it happen and bring bands together and bring the bands on tour and uh, well born again because uh, all of this heritage is, is really the identity of our deep identity of colombia right
0: absolutely Lucas, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Fascinating stories about uh, Chapeta music. And Lucas Silva is the founder of Palenque Records. And if you Google Palenque Records, you can uh, find their Bandcamp uh, site and their blog spot. And you can hear the music. You can uh, also order the music. Thanks a lot for joining us,
3: Lucas. Okay. Thanks a lot to you. I'm very glad of this. And uh, yeah, everybody interested in Afro-Colombian music, you can find our YouTube page by the name of Valencia Records or Bandcamp page also you can check our music in Spotify Deezer all the digital platforms and well i hope that all of you are going to enjoy this a lot thanks a lot <laughs> <laughs>